You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Jerry Parker, Maurice Sieben and I, Niels Kastelasen are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, where we share our experiences, the ups and the downs of what it's like to be a rules-based investor. And of course, where we also take some of your questions. Um, being stateside today, Jerry, so it's easy for me to say good morning to you and good afternoon to you, Moritz. How are you guys doing? Good morning to both of you. I'm doing great. How are you? Welcome. Welcome to the U.S. Yes, absolutely. Getting here a week ahead of our live event just to uh, see a few sites with the family. So uh, very excited about that. In fact, saw my first live basketball game last night at Madison Square Gardens. That was quite a quite a treat uh, for sure. Um, now jumping into kind of this week's review, having not been in front of a computer uh, for most of the week, um, I did not catch that many uh, things happening, except once you're here and you turn on the television, of course, quite a few extraordinary news uh, items uh, and revelations, um, mainly, I guess, within U.S. politics. But of course, today, uh, later on, we have another Brexit vote happening, uh, which, of course, could uh, set the tone for the coming week. Uh, you never know. Um, but I guess it's not surprising that the markets, to a large extent, uh, continued this correction mode, um, which obviously possibly could turn into a bigger transition period, um, which started back in uh, September. Another thing, of course, to notice is that we've only got another two weeks with Mario Draghi at the uh, helm at the ECB uh, until he passes on the baton to Christine Lagarde. Um, but Draghi... Uh, did not uh, hold back uh, this week. Uh, he came out and said that there are some signs of an overstretched uh, or overstretched valuations in the euro area in some of the riskier segments of the financial markets uh, as well as the real estate market. Uh, he was out saying, uh, of course, different in the various uh, regions. So uh, we'll see. Perhaps uh, Lagarde has taken some inspiration from the 2010 movie called How to Train a Draghi, or Dragon, I should say, um, as she takes over at the ECP. But I think maybe the best quote I could find uh, for, um, you know, for our um, conversation today, and I think it, it ties in perfectly with, with the mantra we have in, in trend following, uh, knowing what we don't know. And it, it comes from Howard Marks, um, because he just published one of his famous letters. Uh, this time, the topic is um, negative interest rates. And he starts out by writing, um, he says, I find them no less mysterious. The fact that we know what they are, uh, as we do with inflation and deflation, doesn't alter the fact we don't know for sure why negative interest rates are prevalent today, how long they'll continue and be in force, what might cause them to turn positive, what their consequences are, and he also goes on to say, and whether they reach the US. So I think, you know, with someone like that coming out and really talking about how, uh, in his view, you don't really know what is uh, happening uh, now that we have reached this uh, level of negative interest rates is, is interesting, and I think it just goes to show that our way of approaching the markets, not knowing uh, what's going to happen tomorrow, is um, you know pretty timeless. So, anyways, Mark, that was a long intro um, to um, to you, really, about what what happened this week on your side. It's all been about Brexit, uh, Brexit on, Brexit off, and over and over and over again. I lost about two percent because. Um, most bond markets continue to trade on the downside. So, for instance, the German boons, uh, they've corrected quite a bit in the past couple of days, weeks even, uh, with increasing volatility, lost some money from the currencies, the euro got a bit stronger versus um, the dollar, also the British pound, because people are expecting the Brexit agreement to be accepted and for the the saga to finally end. Well, we'll see about that. Uh, we'll know more later on today. And um, equities didn't move that much, uh, if I remember correctly. 
So it's mostly the bonds and the currencies. And well, that, that put me down about 2%. So, you know, kind of like a normal trend following week, not, not complaining too much. I never complain about performance. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, 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 and kind of Dito on our side, um, bit of a down uh, week, not too bad. Um, but of course, you know, with bonds um, being under pressure, the dollar coming under pressure, um, you know, it is one of those things where is it a correction? Is it a transition? Who knows? Um, if it is a transition into something different, then definitely the pain won't stop just now. Um, but of course, next week, once we know the result of Brexit, it may look very different. Equities hovering around all-time highs. Uh, we still see um, kind of a slight increase uh, in signal strength, uh, meaning uh, possibly higher equity prices. Uh, so, yeah, other than that, um, not one of those weeks that will go down uh, in the great um, kind of uh, history book, I think. So uh, I wonder whether you, Jerry, saw it any any differently this week, or maybe something actually did happen in, in, um, in the single stock markets that we don't pay too much attention to? Uh, you know, the same as usual. Uh, I experienced the similar counter trend action. Uh, <clears throat> I don't think yesterday had too many winning positions uh, and not a lot going on in equities. And if some stocks are hitting new highs, and I think we bought some st a stock yesterday uh, in a bad day in the market, but uh, the yeah, my British pound position looks pretty short. British pound looks looks bad right now. So it's the start of something, or a continuation, or it could be different for each sector. Who knows? Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's uh, jump straight into uh, what potentially could also have been a quiet week in uh, Twitter land, but you never know. It doesn't have to be correlated as such um but what did you um, get most attention on this week jerry yeah it was a pretty quiet week i just have a few uh larry height came up again wayne had some good stuff going on uh but i was sort of intrigued by this one question just to get you guys thoughts uh kind of a simple question from a friend of mine on twitter that i answered and i'll tell you my answer to maybe uh so you won't steal it because I like my answer. But his question is, what is the best investment advice you've ever received? And, uh, well, Sam got it going by saying, buy high, sell low. But I thought, buy high, sell higher. Uh, so I liked Sam's uh, respect for him, but I like mine as well. That, um, And I think I've read some papers and seen some evidence that, you know, uh, contrary to popular belief, uh, you know, buying the breakouts is a pretty good pr price sometimes, and it looks fairly low after uh, the markets have uh, moved for a while, and we sort of get anchored in on, wow, it's the 50-day high or the 100-day high, I'm going to buy this. I wish I would have bought a lot sooner, and uh, this seems like kind of a high-ish price, uh, because it could have been bought so much lower. But then uh, we take our small loss, or it keeps going and makes a lot of money, and uh, or anything in between. And sometimes that breakout price can look fairly low and a good value, quote unquote. Yeah, I mean, I like your, your I like both of responses, of course, uh, that you and Sam gave. Um, interestingly enough, it's something that came up. I was interviewed uh, for Michael Covell's uh, podcast. I think it's the episode is coming out in, in, in a day or two. And he kind of asked me about my background. And since um, I started out as a uh, government bond trader back in the 80s, of course, um, I was taught to buy low and sell high. And um, so he asked me about whether, you know, what, what was the big kind of uh, revelation uh, in, in, in adopting trend following. And it is this concept about, you know, buying the highs and, and selling the lows, which is so counterintuitive to us as, as humans and to what is uh, the popular belief uh, is the right thing to do. Um, so definitely. But I think, you know, the, uh, something that comes a very second close, uh, or a, a close number two to that, you know, buy, buy high and, and, and sell higher and, and, and so on and so forth, 
I think it's the real the power of of, of diversification, um, and and I know that ties into trend following as well. But I will say that um, once you fully understand and embrace the power of diversification and how that works and how that essentially can take care of so many uh, situations for you, um, you know, it's 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 a really important lesson, and of course. I wouldn't want to choose one over the other. I think they go together, um, and um, but I think those are some of the the most important uh, pieces of advice that we can we can take away from our careers. So I'll jump out there. I say there is a, there is a ranking there, and there is a rule that's more important than the one which like Jerry's rule number two, which is buy high, sell higher, sell low, sell lower, and. I think what I've just heard from you, Niels, is my rule number three, which is maximize diversification. But my true real rule number one is cut your losses. Cut your losers all the time. This is more important, I think, than you know having the exact and precise right entry. And remember that we once spoke about this Tom Basso experiment where he had the random entries and he was still making money regardless of whether he bought the high. He just bought or sold and the system made money, and it made money for one reason alone, and that is because he cut his losses. Like, there was a small loss, get out of it, don't let that turn into a large loss. And this, to me, really is the fundamental rule number one in all trading, is the stop loss, get out, keep your losses small, don't let them run on, and everything else builds atop that rule. Yeah, and of course... With all the indoctrination we've had the last uh, 10 days from uh, Larry Heights being on various podcasts that we all listen to, uh, you know, who can disagree with that rule? But I think the true, I mean, the, I think the point is that all of these rules are important and they all form part of uh, trend following, which is what we, uh, which we all embrace, uh, you know, uh, 110%. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I've been watching some of the podcast with uh, Larry Height and his book, The Rule. So I think that might be The Rule, uh, or I, I haven't listened to all of them all the way through. Uh, Covell and Meb Faber, I listened to some this week, uh, but uh, I get a little distracted, but I do hear that uh, cut your losses short and let your profits run. Sounds like two rules, but maybe maybe Larry makes it one. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of uh, unnecessary to... Uh, rank them even as long as you ha you got to have all four or five or ten of these in your head uh, but I do think uh, <clears throat> the desire to buy a break and wait for lower prices can even infect a trend follower um, and uh, you know as part of our live event we're going to talk about the psychological issues that all of us have and have had over the years with our guests and um, how do we overcome those? And is it healthy? I, you know, you asked me to write down some questions for uh, our coach that's coming. And I was like, oh, my God, look how, uh, how, how much I'm writing here. I must have major problems psychologically here. But it's not uh, when you adopt trend following and you've and diversification and all of that, that, that means for a lifetime. And that's all you do. And you're a big advocate and proponent. It's almost like you're going to be. Uh, uh, bombarded by other thoughts even more so. And uh, the evil forces, anti-trend forces of this world are singling you out and coming after you, say, ha-ha, you want to believe in that stuff? Here's a lot of doubt, and here's some drawdowns. Now, see what you can, uh, how you're going to withstand all of that. So none of us are kind of immune, I don't think, at any time to, uh, to the, if being humans and being biased and uh, in, in the way that we're trying to overcome those biases with uh, our systematic approaches. And I would just add to to all of that because we're we're trying to, you know, we're essentially trying to pick, you know, one one issue or one topic that that we say is the the most overriding one. But I want to give you a quote from a conversation that Jerry and I had with Richard Dennis uh, a couple of years back and and in that um towards the end of our conversation uh, Richard Dennis goes you probably still believe that the trend is your friend when really the rules are your guardian angel. I'm not sure which one I would rank as the first most important principle. I think it's pretty much a dead heat. And I think that, you know, says it all. And I think it's, it's, I think it's the question about how to de define the rule. Uh, I think if you can just follow rules in the first place, I think you're off to a great start. 
And that's why I like the name of the podcast, Systematic. And uh, so I think that's so often I want to make a point on the show or think about making a point. And I'm like, is this a trend following thing or is this a systematic thing? I think it's mostly systematic. I mean, I'm okay if people don't trend follow, I suppose, or it's not my style and it's not as long term. But I don't really think, yeah, I think the rules are, um, are supersede almost everything. Yeah. Any further thoughts, uh, Moritz? Agreed on that. The rules are you guarding, Angel. I think this is this this is true. Have rules. Be systematic in your trading. That probably is where it all needs to start. Yeah. Well, that was a good start. Good. Um, yes. Little debate, Jerry. What uh, What else have you got for us to uh, to talk about from Twitterland? Well, another popular one was uh, very simply uh, a quote from Larry Height. This was the Meb Faber uh, podcast with Larry being interviewed. Um, he says, I want to be in a position where something great can happen. If I don't get that, I don't want to play. And it's sort of the uh, the other part of taking small losses is um, you do these trades, buy these breakouts, and sometimes you're not going to take a small loss. It's going to go. And uh, that's what we're all kind of hoping for. Not only that we are in a position. What gets us in a position is having a trailing stop that's not too tight and not too close and we're not too eager to get out. And so when good things, uh, quote unquote good things, because it could be bad things for other people, or it could be a short trade, but uh, you want to put yourself in that position. And that's what taking those small losses can kind of do is you keep probing and buying or selling, going short and hoping that something good for you is going to happen. And of course, we uh, not getting out of the trade too early I think is another thing that Larry talks about. And uh, he talked about this wonderful coffee trade that was quite amazing. I think Niels and I talked about it last week, but uh, it was making so much money and he refused to get out because the trend hadn't changed. Now, what does the trend hadn't changed mean? Well, for him and his rules and system, it hadn't changed. And that's the definition for everybody. It might change in my system before it does anyone else's or vice versa. But he held on. It was so scary. He was making so much money in 1975 coffee trade. But he said that his broker got more uptight and nervous about it than he did. So uh, he had a max profit of $14 million. Ended up making 12, and that's, you know, I've been there. I've seen those trades. They're really fun, but you can definitely screw them up by getting uh, nervous and worried. And I uh, also tweeted about that. It's kind of nice to, um, this is what can happen. You start with 500,000. It goes to 14 million. And, of course, he was trading way too large, but it was his money, and he was having his own fun. And... Uh, but it's what can happen when you don't think about uh, the drawdown or the volatility as well. He was making tons of money. The risk was whatever it was that he would lose on that trade. But when it became solidly profitable, uh, I contend that the volatility was not a sign of risk as much as just, um, you know, a great trade. And when you just follow the system without regard to these other ideas that seem to freak people out sometimes, you can make a lot of money. Yeah, and it kind of ties into what we also uh, discussed last week that, I mean, in many ways, our strategy sets up uh, or is searching for all of these opportunities. And we know in advance that many of them won't pan out, but some of them will. And some of them will, you know, go on to become, uh, you know, extraordinary profitable trades, um, very similar to what the venture capital guys are doing. Are doing, excuse me, when they uh, when they search for the next uh, Facebook or, or Uber and and so on and so forth, but for some reason um, it's very different when they do it compared to what we do. Um, it seems a lot more risky in in our world, even though uh, it's it's obviously not. Um, but I think yeah, I mean I think that's a good way of of uh, of thinking about it. Uh, you know, continuing to search for opportunities um, and and not paying too much attention to to all the noise, uh, which reminded me of what you brought up last week, uh, more to what we discussed, which was another guest uh, on, on the podcast way back, you know, Bill Dries and, and how his performance is, 
you know, long term, fantastic. Um, but of course, with lots of volatility and and noise, like you know, other trend followers have. Um, but when you just are able to uh, ignore that uh, and just stay focused on the effect it will have on a ten year, twenty year, thirty year uh, time frame, it's very very hard to find any strategy really uh, that that can even compete uh, with what we do. I think Bill sees it probably the same way as Larry. There's an opportunity with every trade to get on board a rocket ship. That is what Larry Hyde said. So here's a trade. We can get aboard the rocket ship. We don't know where it's taking us, but what we do know is that we have protection. We kind of like have a little parachute that comes with us. So if the rocket doesn't doesn't go all the way to the moon or even further then we don't have to stay on the rocket until it crashes back down and kills us. You know, we just lift or pull the cord of our little parachute, get out with a small loss. We try again, next rocket ship, over and over again. I think Bill sees it the same way. Which is quite funny because, of course, the listeners can't see us doing this recording, but we can actually see each other. And the the system we use gives us sometimes some funny names. Um, and today, your name came up as creative astronaut. Um, how matching. Moritz. How how amazing is that when you bring in the rocket ship like that? Yes. Very good. Thank you, Squadcast, for that. Oh, I thought uh, Moritz had come up with that on his own because I came up with my uh, mine, obviously, on my own. But... Uh, yeah, so this optionality, you know, trend following can be looked at as uh, option replication to some degree, small losses, unlimited upside. I think this is uh, a really good idea and where you want to be. Uh, and I, I was um, reading on Twitter the other day, and, and I read something that um, a journalist wrote that I respect this journalist, but I he tweeted up a link to a paper that was way too long for me to read at the time. But his point on this momentum trading uh, at least in his tweet, was something like uh, criticizing it as a greater fool theory that uh, if you're going to trade momentum, then you're just buying irrational prices, uh, high prices, dumb. I mean, you know, you're supposed to buy low value, which hasn't worked for 20 years. But uh, and then your whole goal would be to, to liquidate this uh, position, sell, exit your position to a greater fool. So someone even dumber than you, which I was just like, oh, whoa, whoa, back up. No, this is like crazy because, you know, uh, these trends that we participate in, they're driven by the fundamentals. We make fun of fundamentals, but uh, only in the, in the sense that uh, it's better and safer to trade these markets using a systematic rules-based, uh, price-based approach. But golly, they... The markets themselves are run by fundamentals, and uh, like we said earlier, <clears throat> some of these long-term trends can last for multiple years, and you look back at that first breakout you bought, and it was a low price, relatively speaking, and that the market had a place to go, and it was going to go there, and we just rode along for the ride, and uh, when it turned around, we ended up getting out, but I don't think there was any need to try to find somebody a greater fool than us at, at I don't know, this, I think, was some, somewhat of a misconception, or maybe I have it kind of wrong. No, but I think it's interesting, right? I mean, I think you bring up a good point, right? Because, you know, I think that sometimes uh, there has been a little bit more talk about, you know, who's on the other side. I mean, who, who actually are the people buying when we're selling and vice versa. And, of course, the, 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 you know, the interesting thing is that there are just, um, you know, so many different reasons why you would buy or sell a particular market at a certain time. It could be for hedging reasons, could be for all sorts of reasons, right? And and there is no wrong or right. We're not certainly not the ones who have the greatest level of, uh, of um, uh, winning trades. Um, but that's what creates the markets, right? And what creates momentum is... Oh, and, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. It's it's this shift where most of the time, perhaps you have you know equal amount of buyers and sellers, more or less at the same level, but for different reasons. One want to be a buyer, the other one want to be a seller. But then from time to time, some piece of information or something else, you know, shifts that balance. Suddenly, you know, you have significantly more buyers or significantly more sellers, and that creates some level of momentum in the market that we obviously uh, take take advantage of uh, in a systematic way. But but I've certainly heard uh, Jim O'Shaughnessy um, describe what he thinks of why momentum exists and why it continues to, to work. 
in that way and I, I think that's 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 a perfectly sound way of uh, of thinking about it without being too uh, making it too complicated I was just thinking what can I add to that I mean we know we don't concern ourselves really with the why you know it it just does what it does we follow the price kind of like you may look at us as if we were in a race to the bottom of the brainstem and we're all like so motivated to win it because we don't really care about the why. I, I find it enjoyable to read about the why ex post and, you know, have this argument and this opinion, but most of the time it just doesn't matter. And, you know, all of those why forecasts tend to be wrong anyways, in my opinion. So it's really refreshing and relieving to be not concerned with the why and just follow along. It all starts with why, as Simon Sinek wrote in his book, that became very popular. <laughs> so, what else, uh, Jerry, happened in your uh, news feed this week? Well, I was interested in a study that um, I saw and tweeted about uh, from Bank of America, thinking that uh, maybe sixty forty is not the future, and that sixty forty may not work as well as it has in the past, and that uh, showing in charts that. Sometimes the bonds and the stocks are uncorrelated, and sometimes they're correlated. And of course, I have the answer for the future, which is uh, currencies, commodities, stocks, bonds, long and short, trend following. And I believe that's what's, what will happen. The CTAs will step in there and manage a lot more money and a lot more of the portfolio, uh, as long as it contains all of those sectors. And it's the most diversified and best thing going. So. I just thought it was interesting that uh, of this kind of uh, idea that stocks and bonds have gone have been correlated before and for many for long long periods and then now they're not as correlated maybe sometimes and they have been a good hedge but especially with rates so low uh, you know I'm always trying to put a plug in for um, CTAs taking over the world. Yeah, I mean it's interesting that. Um I mean, uh, when when you look at certainly the the top hedge funds out there today, um, I think nine out of ten, or maybe ten out of ten, they're all systematic uh, in 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 the way they approach the investment process. So, I think that certainly it's been um, demonstrated that you know having rules, whatever the rules are, and and having systems to help you implement those rules um, is 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 a good thing and and is a winning uh, formula. The question is, of course, you know how you um, are able to uh, talk about these things, and we know certain strategies uh, have better narrative than than we do. But I don't think any of us are are in doubt that that um, you know hopefully these things will continue to um, grow in 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 popularity. Um, but the whole thing about the sixty forty and 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 equities versus bonds and and how it's been just the perfect. Uh, combination for so many years in people's mind uh, but then once you start looking at the bigger picture the 50 year the 100 year period you realize actually most of the time these things are positively correlated and so you can get in all sorts of trouble um, the day that uh, interest rates start to rise and and may drag down equity prices along with it um, because that would not be unusual uh, when you look at the longer uh, period of time unfortunately I think that's just going to um, take Many many people um, uh, by surprise, and 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 we're going to see um, lots of lots of negative headlines uh, on that count at some point. One of the reasons why I tweeted earlier this week, um, just the way things are, does not have to be the way things are going to be, or something like that. I may have put it in you know some different words, but that's exactly true. Only because the sixty forty portfolio, or some you know risk parity version of that has worked so well for the past 10, 20, 25 years or whatever it is, doesn't mean that it's going to be the perfect portfolio for the future. And, you know, I hope, I'm sure I'm betting on my trend-following portfolio to be a better portfolio than 60-40 for the future. And I don't want to take the risk of, you know, just being invested into asset classes, bonds and equities, and still pretty overweight in equities, um, and bank on the fact that you know, correlation between bonds and equities is right now negative or has been negative in the past couple of years, and that's going to stay that way. So I'm not willing to make that bet. No. Even though it's tempting when you look at the last five years of return charts, right? 
And the whole point is, you don't have to make that bet, right? I mean, just exactly. follow what goes what what goes into uh, you know uh, the the markets themselves, and 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 you know play play the correlation uh, both ways. Um, you know, the conditional correlation rather than sticking to a fixed correlation. I think it's much more powerful. We have so much more diversification, right? And and one of the things about the sixty forty portfolio is also like, you know. We as CTAs, as diversified, trend-following, systematic um, traders, we often come under pressure if we're underperforming the S&P 500. That seems to be, for whatever reason, the godsend benchmark for everyone is the S&P 500, and we're also compared to that one. So if we're underperforming equities or the SPY ETF, then you're kind of like in deep water and you have to justify yourself why your strategy is a good thing. And the 60-40 portfolio doesn't really come under that much pressure because it's always relatively long the equities and it may be underperforming the S&P for a bit, but never super, super massively, right? So I have the feeling that there's much less pressure on those portfolios from an investor's you know, view in terms of performance. And and it's reinforced by um, something I know we talked about uh, last week, and that is most investors nowadays, even professional ones, just want to look like the average. They don't want to stand out either way, right? You know, uh, God forbid they were one percent below the the peers, and and um, and so they just want to look like everyone else. Um, incredibly lack of um, courageousness and conviction, and all of those things that we embrace as managers. Um, but um, that's the way the world uh, we live in right now, at least, uh, has turned out. I agree. And, and and even more puzzling, I think a lot of people, they want to be average, but with less volatility. So give me the average of the S&P 500 or give me the average of the, the market, whatever the market is, MSCI world. You know, everybody has their own definition. And then let's vol control it so that it comes with 5 to 10% or 5 to 7% realized volatility and not their normal equity vol of say 10 to 15 or historically even higher than that so you, you get the average portfolio and because you want to smooth the ride you dial down the risk and the volatility and you get even less return um for your money i i still find that very puzzling why people do that well it's this idea that um i think some people have um you know been told that they can rely on that if you take inherently volatile markets but you put them through some kind of magic formula suddenly you can keep all the goodness that returns and take away all the volatility <laughs> and the losses um and and like we saw with long-term capital right but uh, you can only do that for so long and it's going back to this thing that bill drice was talking about when i spoke with him and that is those strategies warehouse risk what we do on our side is we realize risk we recognize risk on a single on on a daily basis and uh yeah, it looks more risky, but the truth is that those strategies that that show up as as quote unquote volatile are probably the safest strategies uh, out there in terms of people know what they get. Um, you know, so yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, these returns just sort of happen, and people ascribe uh, prediction in the future. But uh, whatever's happened in the stock and bond market, the passive longs, they've just sort of happened. And it's not a strategy, and it's nothing that's necessarily guaranteed for the future. And it's free. The best thing that you can invest in is free, or virtually free. So why do anything else? But adults are always uh, doing things that seemingly don't matter and are taking controlling risk. And then the children are the ones who come up and say, why do you always put the seatbelt on? We never get into a car accident. Why are you doing these things that are unnecessary? They're demonstrated to be unnecessary, and they're kind of a hassle. And the adults in the room have to look beyond that. And for maybe for their, It's success for the rest of your life to wear that seatbelt and never need it. And I think in the same way, we're trying to say just because it's never happened... Does it mean it pretends for the future like a systematic approach with a 5,000 trade uh, sample size that is actually something you can bank on and it just hasn't kind of happened? I think that's a great analogy, actually. I mean, how many of those managers who rely on on these relationships would drive uh, their cars without the seatbelt just because they haven't had an accident? Does it mean that they couldn't have? I mean, of course not. So, 
This leads into a good tweet from Meb. I was trying to make fun of Meb a little bit here, but he actually didn't get offended, I don't think, but he liked my tweet, my response to his tweet. I'm always taking risks here on Twitter. It's dangerous here on Twitter land, but uh, he goes on. He says, you can buy a global tax-efficient portfolio for less than two basis points. When broad market cap buy-and-hold investing is a commodity and free, what does that mean for you and your clients? And I wrote, it means the drawdown will be around 50.02% versus 51.5%. Wow. Yeah. I mean, really, doesn't, isn't that what it means? Of course, that would, that's what it means. So, you're down 50%, long-only stocks, and not a systematic approach, something that has happened to work, and we've been begging you to, to be more diversified with shorts and a trailing stop and taking small losses. The difference between the fees that you pay can be very irrelevant. Oh, yeah. Not today, because we don't have to worry about today. And it's been working recently. I mean, who says things like this? Yeah. Well, this portfolio doesn't have a seatbelt. No seatbelt. No need. It's never needed it. It's been so long since it hasn't needed it, then it doesn't need it. You know about this seatbelt, it's actually, you know, just an anecdote. But what, what I observe relatively frequently is that friends and I, and they're like, you know, trading friends and, and stuff. And, and you go into a taxi and if you drive your own car, if you're driving with a friend, you put on a seatbelt. But the moment you go into a yellow cap in New York City, some of the people that don't put on a seatbelt... And I always go like, why Why is that? I mean, why? You don't know the taxi driver. That taxi driver could be a very bad taxi driver. There's you know stuff that happens in New York City and Manhattan. There can be in an accident. So why are you not putting on the seatbelt? So people have, for whatever it's worth, and I don't know where that's coming from, a, a feeling of security within a taxi so that they don't put on the, the seatbelt. And it's one of those great puzzles that will probably never be solved. But... Um, I just then called them out and said, you're a bad risk manager. <laughs> Put on the seatbelt. You know, it takes two seconds to do. Why, why don't you do it? And, you know, then they do it because they understand there's no reason not to do it. Which reminds me of when I go to Germany, since you live in Germany uh, and where there is uh, no speed limit in some places. I mean, the taxi drivers in Germany, they certainly know how to uh, get you from point A to point B uh, in, in no time. So I would say you know, not wearing a seatbelt uh, when you get into uh, or get on the German highways in a taxi is definitely uh, a scary oh, You don't have to do it here. We're so good drivers. Nothing happens. Of course. Absolutely. I know. I knew that was the answer. Yes, Thank you, no, Mark, I'm, for I'm, putting that <laughs> on the record. I'm, ki I'm kidding. I think you definitely need to put on a seatbelt here. <laughs> it's getting wild. It is getting wild. Speaking of getting wild, any more... Um, Tweets, or do you want to do a couple of questions? Yeah, let's do some questions. Okay, let's do that. While I find the questions, um, I will just remind everyone, or not remind because we haven't really said it before, but I just want to throw it out there that next week, um, we probably won't be able to do our weekly conversation over the weekend because we have this live event here in New York. Um, so don't expect the uh, Systematic Investor episode to come out until maybe monday evening possibly tuesday morning but uh, i know our uh, our producer he will do his very best as soon as he gets the files from us um but we will try and record it of course monday morning uh, new york time now here is a um couple of questions from uh, jack or jacob actually um so here we goes um as per system order output, how do you guys enter trade, i.e. do you enter uh, via stop loss, uh, good to cancel orders, working in all markets, uh, liquidity permitted, or do you enter manually, or how does that work when the entry price is traded overnight? Is there a 24-hour monitoring? For otherwise, uh, there is a chance, uh, or there's a change you might miss, or there should be, there is a chance you might miss your entry point during the night, uh, which is in most case, or which in most cases you won't uh, want to do. So, um, I mean, from our side, J Jacob, we we do run a twenty-four hour desk, so uh, so our traders will always um, uh, be there when when the action happens. But we don't use stops uh, at done, so uh, so we want to trade. Uh, we want to make the adjustments to our portfolio on a daily basis. And, and of course, we have some experienced, uh, very experienced, I would say, uh, guys on the on the trading desk. Um, 
And um, so they will find the best uh, way of executing that uh, order, uh, whether it's right at the open or whether it's, you know, an hour or so into the trading. Depends a little bit on the liquidity, but we definitely want to get those orders done um, best possible and as, as quick as possible. So that's how we do it uh, on our side. What about you, Moritz and, and, and Jerry? I run a daily process um, which produces an order sheet. That that order sheet is sent to brokers. I don't um, I don't leave orders in the market for too long, so I don't have rest in orders for weeks and weeks with with stops in there and kind of like resubmit them. But it's a daily routine, and um, you know, as far as the entries are concerned, um, with the the way I trade and, and, and the fact that the system is relatively long-term, maybe not as long-term as Jerry's, but still pretty long-term, um, if I get a signal to enter a market, it doesn't really matter all that much whether I trade it right then and there or whether I trade it next day on the open or next day on the close or you know with some type of you know algorithm that gets me into the market the next day. So that is what I, what I do most of the time. Um, the, the actual point of entry, given my holding period is, is not impacted all that much. If I, you know, I think even if I delayed the entry, you know, another day, it wouldn't change the overall picture all too much. So that's my approach to it. And if I can just stay with you, Moritz, and then Jerry can answer both questions, because Jacob actually follows up, and that is, he asked that when you do then get filled into a new position, do you calculate your new stop for that position straight away um, and put it in as a stop, or do you just kind of monitor that? How 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 does that work? Yes, that then works exactly with the next run that I'm doing. Um, so when a, when a, when a, a position is entered, I immediately have a stop with that, right? So I kind of like send the stop loss with the with the entry order, and um, and then you know it the next daily routine picks that up, and if stops need to be changed, then you know stops are changed and the orders are submitted to the broker. Cool. Any thoughts on your side, uh, Jerry? Uh, well, I think um, uh, it's probably not that. Uh material which way you choose to do it I, I think we said last week you know some of these questions uh, choose something and stick with it just so if you're going to trade on the close or during the day or on the open it's you know do it like that and that's what we could try try to do we trade mostly on the close or the open and uh, use algos sometimes in the stocks especially and put our trades in electronically and in the futures and maybe use algos as well so it's, I don't think how you do it, you're going to hold these trades for a year or two, at least I am, and then I'm not going to get too excited about uh, trying to get a f finesse the, the execution or the fill. Uh, but I think uh, being patient and <clears throat> waiting to the, towards the end of the day, or maybe the, it's worked out pretty well for us. And like Moritz said, it, if you do the back testing, it probably doesn't matter very much how you execute. Yeah. So Jacob follows up with a question. He specifically mentions you, Jerry, as possibly knowing what he means. I'm going to read it. Uh, I'm not so sure that... Anyways, here goes, and then maybe you can comment on it. Uh, if stops are put in place on the day of entry, i.e. you get stopped in and then you put in place a new stop, or as soon as a new position is taken, how do you handle a situation where your stop loss is hit on the day of entry? And A... The closing price is below your initial stop loss price, or B, the closing price is above your initial stop loss price. Um, um, do you know what he's talking about, Jerry? Do you know is that a particular um, situation that might be troublesome? It doesn't seem particularly troublesome to me. You just follow the, just take 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 the stop losses as they come. He left out some assumption, which is. He's. I think he's. He's. He's sort of describing a situation that, uh, for some reason, he's. He's um, questioning whether he is going to do the trade intraday. So I'm like, yeah, do the trade intraday. Right. So, it. On uh, one hand, I think you know it's rare. I mean, it would be extremely rare for us to have that occur. Because, for number one, is we have a healthy stop loss so we don't put it that close to our entry price you know i used to trade with very small stop losses and so that could get hit multiple times right. during the day yeah. buy get out buy get out <laughs> but i think you know your stop loss distance from your entry 
one ATR, two ATRs, five ATRs, 5%, 10%, however how you're going to do it, uh, it's going to be correlated to your win percentage. Mm-hmm. So if you're too short-term on your stop losses, your win percentage is going to get fairly low. So it's, it's okay to have a stop loss that is um, you know, a fair distance from your entry. I classify that still as a small loss, let's say. Uh, so it's going to be pretty rare uh, if you optimize that and look at what the computer is going to tell you in the back test that you're going to have multiple intraday entries and exits. Yeah, and I just want to add to that, uh, Jacob. I mean, I in the past, I've certainly uh, worked with systems that use stop losses. And I, and I know you're right. I mean, theoretically, on a particular day, on a particular trade, it can get a little bit messy if the markets are incredibly volatile. You get stopped in and out, you know, uh, on the same day, et cetera, et cetera. I think the key thing is always to know at the end of the day and, and when you get into the next day, what should be your position and just get into that position. I mean, whether it's a little bit messy, there's a little bit of extra trades uh, here and there and and all of that, I mean, j- just get into the position the system tells you you should be in uh, despite that kind of intraday volatility. I think that's, and, and, and as Jerry and Moritz said, in the long run, these things really don't matter that much um, because we're always going to have, you know, uh, days like that, but they're not that, they're not uh, common, uh, so to speak. Let's jump on to the new uh, to the next question from uh, Manic or Manic, uh, perhaps I should pronounce it like that. Um, Manic says in the previous show, uh, October fourteenth, two thousand nineteen, one of you talked about backtesting your system and mentioning that you need to take a big enough sample size. Um, I'm developing my own systematic approach to the market, and I'm just curious what you mean by big enough. So what is big enough when when you guys think about sample size? Interesting question. Um, I don't think I have a precise answer as to what is big enough and what what is a large enough sample. Uh, It's probably subjective to look at that. But look, I mean, when you try out different things in a spreadsheet and Python, whatever it is that you use, and you're only using, you know, a few markets and you have, you know, a very delicate set of parameters and that you know you run it for 20 years and it only comes back with 50 occurrences then you know without doubt that is not a large enough sample size right but if i have a system that's trading on 80 markets and it's the same 20 year period and i've designed uh, my parameters in such way that it can trade and you know produces a sample size historically of say five, six, seven thousand or something like that. Well then that is a meaningful a much more meaningful sample. So I would say anything that's less than I mean I'm just I, I really I don't I don't have a fixed rule for that, but you know anything that's less than thousand or thousands of samples is not enough for me. Any thoughts, Jerry or Yeah if I could I have an article that I should post on this question, and I think uh, I don't have the answer either. I think there is an answer, and I think it's more than you think. Thousands or you know, thousands of trades it, it comes to mind. Um, I think it's important not to on purpose do things that would decrease that, add uh, variables to your systems that uh, make it lower than it possibly can be. And a lot of it's going to be determined, even if you're trading uh, one entry, one exit, and a stop loss. For instance, a lot of your sample size is going to be impacted by uh, the length of your look-back period. It needs to be longer than it used to be, but then that's going to reduce the number of trades. And in this article, I'll try to post it uh, from a very smart uh, interview of a smart, very smart person on this topic. He says it's even worse than that. In that uh, when you have a systematic approach like trend following that is not a normal distribution, you need even more trades. So I think that the most important thing to remember is try to find more, not less. If you can add a take profit or an exit that's based upon a different type of exit, and one exit for the, for the stop loss and one exit for a profit, that's bad enough. That's two exits, so that's cut your sample size down. And then a third exit when something else is different. I think if you can stay away from things like that, you're going to be better off for it. You cannot have too much 
sample size. And I think, in, in, as I said many times before, it's great to have rules, but some of these rules and systems that I hear about, they are, are not, they're limiting the, the sample size and the, re the reliability and robustness going forward. Yeah, great stuff. So make sure everyone you follow Jerry on Twitter, and when he finds that article, you'll uh, have uh, access to that. Thanks for the question, Monique. Uh, we got a question from Craig this week as well. It's an int I mean, it's an interesting question, and I'll just uh, read it as you wrote it, um, Craig. It says, uh, seeing occasional long drawdown periods on a backtest is much easier to accept than living and dealing with them in real time, in my opinion. I wonder if there is a patience premium that we are compensated with because the strategy spends so long in drawdowns. Should potential trend-following investors be screened for their aptitude to exhibit the patience required? And what patience characteristics from a person's everyday life would you look for that would make them suitable to invest in this strategy? I mean, I think it's a great question, uh, Craig. And again, if I can just give my two cents first. Um, from dealing with investors for the last almost 30 years in this space, I would say um, you, you you certainly come across a lot of people who will, on before they make the investment, will tell you that they are incredibly patient. They understand that it's a long-term investment and, um, you know, all of that. But then as soon as the drawdown starts... Uh, that perspective changes, and sometimes it changes quite dramatically, even sometimes to a point where they will, of course, get out uh, at the worst time in, in the first drawdown of the strategy. So I don't know that you can, um, with very high level of accuracy, um, tell if a person is a good investor or not. I think the key thing is in your communication with potential investors is, one, educate educate, educate, and also allow everyone as much time as they need to get comfortable and to make that decision on their own. Do not pressure anyone uh, like you see in so many other types of promotion and, 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 and so on and so forth to buy your strategy or to get into the strategy because you can be almost 100% sure that if you do, they will bail on you the first time you have a drawdown. So they need they may need to sometimes see one or two drawdowns from your trading um, before they um, realize that it's okay and it's normal. Uh, I mean, as I said uh, last week, this month is this 45th year that Don is, uh, you know, has been doing trend following. And uh, so we have a long history of people can where they can look like Jerry. Um, and Moritz, you know, a long history where people can look and see all of the drawdowns. And we show them, we're proud of them, because every time you have a drawdown that you come out of, you know, it shows you that you survived. And 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 just quoting again Bill Dreis, uh, because that conversation is quite uh, clear in my mind today, uh, for whatever reason. I mean, he talked about the real risk of trend following is actually having investing with a manager who freaks out during a drawdown and, and do something completely stupid. That's the real risk. The risk is not the system and the rules. It's what it's how the manager reacts during that drawdown. So having looked at, you know, if so you can look at Jerry's track record or Dunn's track record or anyone else who's been around for a long time and you can see how they dealt through these drawdowns, um, that should help give investors the confidence and therefore the long-term perspective. But it's not a guarantee um, but I don't think you can do better than that. But make sure you don't pressure anyone to buy a strategy like that because then I think you can be sure that they're going to leave the first time they get an opportunity. Great. I, I'm not sure if there's a patience premium, but um, I agree with all of what you said, uh, Niels. I, I think it's also a form of recency bias, what you've described with the investors when they come in and they say, well, I'm going to have a multi-year view on my investment you know five years and more and then that view quickly changes once the first drawdown comes around the corner and it becomes a more short dated view and then my may, may, may even throw in the towel and exit the investment at that point in time which which is a pity i think we've mentioned before that it may help to specifically focus on the periods of drawdown that have happened in the past because when you just look at the chart they they seem fine. They may be multi-year 
drawdown periods, and you've mentioned Bill, he's had multi-year drawdown periods. You look at his chart and you kind of like go, well, well, that's easy. But when you're in them, it's not that easy. It's uh, probably also a form of recency bias that your perspective changes right there and then. And, um, and you know, Bill's, I think he's an expert in, in staying super calm. And, and, and I know him a bit during these periods of drawdown. Like, you know, you wouldn't even recognize a bit of change in the way that he is. There's complete belief in his system. You know, he's down 30%. He still continues to trade at 30% vol or something like that. And he just follows the system religiously. There's no deviation from it. And, you know, we've seen the results. I mean, I've, I've shared it with you. He's now making new highs. And um, it, it takes a lot of stamina to go through these periods and a lot of experience to hold on and not give up. And I think this is something that is tough to learn. It can be learned. Um, it's never easy, but you have to come to terms with it. Yeah, I think that's true. And um, just making the bottom line, following the system. I think, yeah, it's rare to find people who could be uh, that unemotional, maybe in the midst of making money, but they cheated. Maybe they're unhappy and in the midst of losing money uh, because they follow the system, they have uh, no response or they're perfectly fine with it. So I think that is where you need to be. The mistakes that systematic traders make uh, is not following the system or maybe over uh, trading too large and not uh, cutting back, I guess. You, know, you can follow the system to your death if you're trading too large a, a good system. You know, you don't want to trade risk too much. Uh, like I said, Larry turned 500000 into four, $12 million. That He got lucky on that one uh, because that was risking a lot of his equity, the 500000 So I think uh, with that caveat, following the system, making that the bottom line is, is, is the place to start. And I think also in a roundabout way, uh, Craig, I think that was part of why I threw out on Twitter this week uh, one of uh, one of these few tweets that I do compared to Jerry, but just questioning whether, uh, and maybe a little bit in, 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 in gist and saying, you know, maybe the real edge of a trend follower is actually how the manager himself, I can't remember the exact wording, you know, deals with these emotional things, maybe more so than just designing the buys and the, and the sell and, you know, signals. Um, it, it takes something special, I think, uh, and certainly from the pioneers, uh, you know, which certainly include uh, Jerry. I think it takes something special, uh, especially back in the 80s and 70s, where maybe computer power and, and data and all of those things weren't that readily available as it is today. And certainly we had less history. It takes something special to go out and then do what, um, you know, what they did uh, and, 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 and just kept believing in, 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 in the rules. Um, so, yeah, interesting. Appreciate that, uh, Craig. Final question from one of our favorite people, namely the producer, the guy who makes us all sound great every week, uh, Dimitri. So uh, Dimitri has uh, a question that uh, he uh, wanted to ask, and he says, how do you approach positions that haven't moved much for a long period of time? Andreas Klino has mentioned previously in one of his books that he cuts trades if they haven't moved for 20 days, for example. This frees up capital to take up fresh signals. But what is your opinion on this? Doesn't the potential for a large price move increase the longer a position moves sideways? What was that last part? Uh, doesn't uh, the p potential for a large price move increase the longer the position moves sideways? Oh, I don't know about that. I mean, that's slicing and dicing data again and hurting sample size. And but but good. I mean, maybe I'm on the right side. So I have a position. It goes up pretty steadily. It consolidates for a, whatever this long period of time is, and then maybe it blasts off for the highs again. Um, and once again, this is another way to reduce sample size. After another rule, another way to exit, and this is to be avoided. Got one entry, one exit, and a stop loss. But we're humans, and we're just 
we've got to pull the trigger. I mean, I'm sitting here and it's been so many days and it hasn't done anything. Isn't the market telling me something? No, follow your rules. It's not telling you anything, except you'll be rewarded if you follow the system. And so I don't understand this desire to re uh, reduce your sample size once again. And then, um, probably don't have time to get into all of this, but I set my manage money management up to where I can afford to take all the trades. So sometimes I won't have very many trades. Sometimes I won't, I will have a lot of trades on, but I think my risk budget is sort of fixed, but I'm never at my max. Uh, so I don't need to do anything to trades that are suboptimal or add a rule in that allows me to do the next trade. Uh, now, if I'm losing money and I'm on the defensive and I want to make an equity cutback, then I'll reduce all my future trades by 10 or 20%, things like that. Any thoughts, uh, Mort, before I share my view? Yeah, I like Andreas Glenow, but I don't like that rule of his. I... Um... I, you know, I concur with Jerry, you know, if I have a position on for, you know, whatever, whatever people think is a long time period, month even, and it hasn't moved much and it's trading sideways, that for me is not a reason to take the position off and put the money into some other market. Because, you know, who am I to say that, you know, if I trade this other market, that that's going to do any better than the one that I'm currently in going forward. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring us. The market that may be quiet and silent and sideways may be the rocket ship tomorrow. So I don't do that. And uh, and in terms of like money management and, and, you know, with futures, you know, if we put the margin up, I like Jerry, there will be, if another trade comes up uh, and another rocket ship is available, I will have enough capital to get on that rocket ship, so I don't need to uh, to, to make that my limiting factor. Um, even if you traded cash equities, if you have a brokerage account, you can trade on margin. That doesn't necessarily have to be a limiting factor. Of course, if you have, you know, you know, hundred dollars and you need to pay everything in cash, and then the cash is tied up, then that thinking changes. But for me, that's not that relevant. So, no, I, I maintain the position. And the only reason to get out of the position is the stop loss. And and that's the clear exit. Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely agree with both of you. Just to put it in a slightly different perspective, maybe, Dimitri, I mean, I'm not aware and in, in, in what situation that Andreas uh, uses a rule like that. But certainly in our case, where we trade futures only, we have plenty of cash. I mean, on average, we may spend, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25% of the cash we have to put on all our trades. So it's not a limiting factor for us. I think what, um, so so again, and, and, and as Jerry completely uh, correctly says, I mean, don't make things too complicated about adding extra rules. Just, just follow a simple set of rules. I know where you're coming from, I think potentially when you say about if a market has a big sideways move, could the next move be bigger? I think that comes from technical analysis, um, which I don't think we really use, uh, even though it's probably a, a cousin of trend following to some extent, people could argue. but. I mean, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, you can think about um, markets being uh, consolidating for a long time and you'll hear some technical analysis saying, yeah, that's setting it up for a big move next time we have a breakout. But there's no, just no guarantee for that. And and, and, and as Jerry and Morris says, we, we don't know what's going to happen. So, again, don't overcomplicate things um, at all. Just just find a set of rules that works, do the back test, uh, make sure you have enough uh sample size to feel comfortable and 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 just uh, just follow those rules um so but thanks for the question dimitri which you will hear when you uh, produce this episode um those were the questions this week uh i know we all have a little bit of a time constraint um today so let me ask if there were any other things oh, well actually while i just go through the performance uh where we stand if you want to think of anything else you want to bring up we can do that but as of thursday and i'm pretty sure yesterday friday was a, a down day for the for the industry so um so as of thursday um the looked uh, the following the beta 50 was down 2.22 for october up 6.77 for the year Sokgen ct index also down 2.22 for the month up 6.18 for the year Sokgen trend index down 
almost 4%, 3.94 to be precise, uh, but still up 9.17 for the year. The Sukjin Short-Term Traders Index was pretty much flat so far for the month, down 0.04, up 1.78 for the year, and the Bridge Alternatives Index down 3.30 for the month and up six, sorry, 8.24 for the year. Guys, next time we speak, it'll be live in New York, live event coming up um, starting Friday evening. Any final thoughts for this episode um, before we bring it to a close? Well, I'm looking forward to seeing you guys next week. Yeah, same here. And uh, we didn't have a lot to talk about, but we, but we ended up having a lot. And I posted the article about sample size uh, on Twitter just now. So great. Saturday morning. Saturday morning. Make sure you go and follow uh, Jerry. Make sure you grab the paper. Uh, if you have any further follow-up questions, let us know. As usual, all questions are welcome. Uh, well, not all questions are welcome, but uh, good questions are welcome. <laughs> if you send them to info at toptradersonplug.com, we'll do our best to answer them. Um, but on that note, we're going to wrap up this week's conversation. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, and of course, if you want to give something back to us, uh, all we ask for is that you share the podcast with a like-minded friend. And really one share is, uh, is, is would be great. So from uh, Jerry, Moritz and me, thanks so much for spending part of your day with us. We are grateful for your support. And we can't wait to be back with you, albeit a little bit later next week, uh, in just a few days. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor. 